Welcome, everybody. This is the Long Story Short podcast, uh, the episode where you get to ask us anything. Uh, my name is Becca Bruner. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Knox Presbyterian Church, and I am with my favorite co-pastor. <laughs> Want to introduce yourself, co-pastor? I better be your favorite co-pastor. I'm your husband. I'm David Bruner. I'm the other co-pastor of Knox Presbyterian Church. And when I say this is the Ask Us Anything podcast, um, <laughs> I would like to make a correction because as I discovered in our small group this last Sunday night, when uh, y'all started firing questions at me about the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, Dave wasn't there with me. Dave was rudely away at a great banquet uh, commissioning and prayer mm -hmm. night, um, getting ready to serve the people of the Lord. And he wasn't there to answer all the really hard questions you were asking. And um, I didn't have much to do with that. So I'm really glad that Dave is here. It's a really ask Dave anything <laughs> sort of podcast. Uh, so I'm here to facilitate the questions that you sent in. Thank you so much for sending them and um, hopefully provide some clarity and understanding to our reading of scripture so far. Uh, the questions that you have sent mostly do address um, the portions of scripture that we've read up till now. Um, we may do this again as we continue through the Bible because... I think um, that would be cool. Yeah, there's a lot that inspires us. There's a lot that encourages us. Uh, there's a lot that confuses us when we read the Bible. Um, and that's a good thing because God is always bigger than our understanding and always invites us to grow in greater understanding of him and his word. So with that, Dave, are you ready? Yeah. Are, are you really? Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. All right. So uh, first question kind of has to do, uh, I'm going to broaden it out a little bit. It has to do with the broad topic of who wrote the Bible. Uh, this question came in specifically, it was about the Psalms, which we haven't gotten to yet, but one of the Psalms was, uh, it seemed to have been attributed to Moses, which is interesting. We didn't think Moses was alive uh, once we get all the way to the Psalms, but uh, there it is in the Bible. So they say Moses may have written that one. But that leads me to kind of a bigger question of not just about that psalm and Moses, but about what we've read in the Bible so far. Um, how do, what do we know about who wrote the Bible? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. And it's a very common question to ask when you study the Bible. Um, it's a simple question and there's not a simple answer, which is unfortunate. So, you know, the Bible as Protestants read it is 66 books and each of those 66 books has its own unique story about how it came to be in the Bible and who wrote it. So, you know, the book of Luke is very different from the book of Judges and the book of Psalms is very different from the book of Revelation. Um, so to focus on the portion of the Bible we've been looking at so far, um, you know, so as I say this, we're getting into the book of Deuteronomy and the book of um, the book of Judges um, and the book of Joshua a little bit. So we're we're basically in the first five books of the Bible at this point. Right. Which is known as some other names too, right? The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's ex exactly right. So what are the other names that those that, that's been sometimes called the law? Sure. Right? So especially friends in the Jewish community will call it the Pentateuch, right? Or the Torah. Okay, so right. uh, the, the first five books of the Bible is typically known by that title. Um, and that's uh, some of the very oldest stuff in the whole Old Testament, which is some of the oldest stuff in the whole Bible. Um, Typically, um, 
typically people wonder if Moses wrote those five books, and the answer is pretty much no. Um, they often think that because that's what Scripture says, right? Or it's called the first five books of Moses, um, and at various points it'll have information about um, Moses speaking in them or Moses authoring those books. Um, pretty much scholars tend to agree that that's not the case. Um, and there's actually um, a working hypothesis about where those first five books came from. That's called the documentary hypothesis. Um, we both learned about this in Intro Old Testament at Princeton ages and ages ago. Um, basically, it's, it's a way of trying to explain different strands that go into making up those first five books of the Bible. So if you think of the Torah as like a tapestry, right, that's woven out of different strands, there are at least four identifiable strands that make up the Torah. And um, scholars often summarize them by talking about J, E, D, and P. So those are the, the four sources or strands that make up the Torah. So you've got, I think they, they stand for Yahwistic, Elohistic, let's see, priestly, and deuteronomic. So typically they'll have different, the reason we think there are four of them is that they'll have different emphases. They'll, they'll point out different things. They'll linger on different aspects. They'll um, use different terms to refer to God. They'll, they'll have different names for God that they use habitually, and they'll have different theological themes. So, for instance, the D source, the so-called Deuteronomistic source, um, is uh, grappling with, um, is written at a later time and grappling with the failure of some of the kingdoms of Israel. So it's written after, um, after the kingdom is founded and after it splits in two, and there are a lot of problems. So part of what they're trying to do is look back at the history of Israel and say, how did we get into this mess? Where did this come from? Um, so you'll notice those themes in the, in the Deuteronomistic strands of the Torah. It's, it's there if you know what to look for. So that's an example of the complexity of this stuff, right? That um, the simple question, who wrote the Bible? I've tried to answer it for five books of the Bible, and I had to talk for five minutes. And if you asked me, you know, where did the Psalms come from or where did Isaiah come from, I would talk for another 25. This might be heretical, so you can always tell me if it is. Uh, but it makes me think, um, the other day, one of our kids was asking me why uh, some people in Texas speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I was explaining, well, Texas used to be a part of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I think this was Ben, uh, that he didn't quite understand. He said, oh, you, he, he was imagining the land mass of Texas uh, moving from Mexico <laughs> to the United States and didn't understand how that could work. Um, and so then I was trying to explain to him the idea of colonization, which is hard sure. to explain to a seven-year-old. Right. Um, so I, I, that example is coming to mind because uh, me telling Ben the story of how Texas became a part of the United States, I would tell that as a, as a white middle-class woman, I would tell that story in one way, whereas a person 
you know, either in the same sure. time frame or, you know, who happens to live in Texas and who has descendants from Mexico or maybe somebody 100 years ago uh, to tell the story of how Texas became a part of the United States. It's the same story. Right. But told in a very different way because there's different reasons behind the telling of the story and different emphases and different um, ideology. Ideology. Ideolatry is not a word. <laughs> ideology. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's asked, Dave. Um, different ideologies being brought in. Is there? It, would that be? Uh, I mean, it's it's a very rough analogy. Sure. But it's two different people trying to tell the same story of of something, but coming from a very different place, telling it. Sure. I mean, I think one of the. Uh, I think there's definitely something to what you've just described, right? So. Um, one of the things we see in the book of Genesis that we've already talked about in our class and, and somewhat in the sermons, right, is that Genesis 1 is a different account of creation than Genesis 2. So Genesis 1, you get God creating the world in six days. It ends with the Sabbath. Everything's complete and perfect. Then you get Genesis 2, which um, is it, scholars believe is a different account of creation, different names for the divine, and different details. So in Genesis 2, God creates Adam and Eve, but Genesis 1 tells us that the man and the woman have already been created. God creates the man and the woman in a different order than he does in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 2, it's first the man and then the animals, and only then at the end, the woman. Whereas in Genesis 1, the animals come first and then the people come last. Um, and yet, for all that, for the fact that they're different accounts, they clearly are both um, wonderful additions to Scripture that tell us something indispensable about God and our place in the world God has made. So they're both getting at something um, about that. And so part of what I love about studying scripture in this way and learning more about the different traditions that make it up is that it, it enhances the richness of our understanding of the Bible because there's this depth and profundity to it that only becomes more apparent when you start to look at the different pieces that make it up. And then this leads to the a next kind of category of question that I think is really important because in my analogy, it's me and someone else in the world at a different time in a different culture trying to tell a story of something that happened in history. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. The end goal is saying Texas became a part of the United States. Mm -hmm. But the Bible's goal isn't to tell a story of something that happened long, long ago. That's not its purpose. Mm. Right? It's not a work of history. Exactly. Yeah. We've talked about that in sermons. You've talked about that in your book, but that's still, or in your class, but that's still something that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Mm -hmm. um, and so some questions have come in along those lines. So, uh, you know, somebody asked, you know, naming that we have talked about the idea that scripture is a story and it's a story that we don't necessarily take as scientific or historical fact. Uh, so if that's the case, how do we read it? How do we read scripture? If it's not history, what is it and how are we to receive it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so that's a great question. And again, I mean, it, it, partly depends on what part of the Bible we're talking about, right? So, you know, the Psalms, as you know, are works of Hebrew poetry, and they're about 
God and Israel's relationship with God. But to ask if we should, quote unquote, take the Psalms literally is to get off on the wrong foot to begin with, right? Because they're poetry. How do you take poetry literally? That shows that you don't understand the genre that you're dealing with. Um, I think when we talk about the Bible being a story or when we talk about the Bible being not a work of history, what we're getting at is that issue of genre. So overall, the purpose of the purpose of Holy Scripture is to point us to God. It is to witness to God, to attest to who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what God's done in Jesus and among Israel, right? And um, that's that means it has a different nature and a different purpose than a work of history as we understand it in the modern era, right? So um, if the Bible were a work of history as we understand it today, it would, you know, start way back in 2000 or 3000 BC and tell us the history of the ancient Near East. And then it would tell us everything about Abraham and everything about Moses and everything about David and blah, 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 all the way in painstaking detail down to the present age. And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible's not interested in a lot of those details because they aren't pertinent to its purpose, which is to tell us about God and what God has done and who God is, you know, and the Bible contains, contains historical information. It does tell us about some things that really happened, right? There really was a man named Jesus there. He did die on a cross. There are lots of other historical data that have been verified or which seem reliable in the Bible, but to go to the Bible and say, what we're going to find in every instance is reliable historical facts is, again, getting off on the wrong foot. So that's how I would sort of start to frame that question. So the asker of this question is also wanting some help in you getting a little bit more specific, and this might be hard. Uh, but commenting both on the Old and New Testament, they're wanting a little help to say, OK, sure, the Psalms are to be read as poems. I get that. That's the genre I can take sure. figuratively. Uh, what are the parts that are not to be taken figuratively? Are there parts that are meant to be taken more uh, literally, or the you know the plain translation of the word of the words there? Um, how do we know what we're dealing with? So, so I, I sympathize with the spirit um, in which the question is asked, and I sympathize. I think there's a little bit of a uh, the person being like, okay, how do we read the Bible behind that question? And I'm really glad somebody's asking that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's often the case that when we're children or when we're young, we think everything in the Bible happened exactly the way the Bible says it happened. And when we grow up, we are exposed to modern scholarship. We start to ask questions ourselves, and we find that it's not that simple. And this does pose a challenge for some people because it's like they look at the Bible and they begin to think, okay— if X part of the Bible didn't really happen, that's fine. But these other parts of the Bible did really happen, right? And so they're saying, okay, tell me which parts of the Bible are reliable. Tell me which parts of the Bible really happened. And I would, I would want to, again, say that's not the first question. That's not where we should begin. So... Um, The first thing we need to understand about the Bible is that it is the word of God and that it declares God's word to us when it is 
rightly read and studied in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, you know, think about the parable of the prodigal son. So Jesus tells this wonderful parable about the prodigal son, um, and it's a story of God's forgiveness and God's mercy. That didn't happen, but it is a totally true expression of the character of God as we see it in the New Testament. So t to be like, oh, well, that story is literally true is to misunderstand it, but it's a, it is a accurate, we would say veridical, right, um, understanding of who God is. You're going to need to define that word veridical. It, it just means true. Great. Right? Um, so the idea that that um, we can divvy scripture up into certain parts that we take literally and other parts we don't take literally is um, a bit too, um, is not going to steer us in the right direction. It's a bit too general. So for instance, when we get to the gospels, one of the things we're going to see is that the gospels contain a lot of historical material about Jesus, a lot of things that really happened. Um, and there are a lot of commonalities among all the Gospels that attest to this. But the Gospels are not, are not biographies, right? They don't aim to tell us, hey, Jesus was at point A, and then he went to point B, and then he went to point C. Um, and if you look carefully at them, you can see that. Um, you know, so on one level, it's a mistake to take them literally as though they were histories or biographies. But in another sense, they're still very much God's word to us. And they accurately um, pass on the character of Jesus. They accurately pass on the character of his ministry, his teachings, his suffering, crucifixion, and his resurrection. Um so in that sense, right, they're very much to be taken literally. So a lot to turn, uh, um, a lot turns on, I, I like the, you know, there's a little quip in the church, you know, I don't take the Bible literally, I take it seriously. And I think that's a helpful place to begin. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I've been, I've been talking a lot, but I hope yeah. that, I hope that helps. Yeah. I mean, I remember learning about J-E-D-P, J-E-P-D. You got it. The letters. The letters. Uh, documentary <laughs> hypothesis. Uh, I learned about it first in college and then in seminary. And it still, even now, kind of makes my brain hurt. Um, but I do still really hold on to the idea of, yeah, we take the Bible seriously as God speaking to us and revealing God's self to us. Like that's its most important task. It's really in the grand scheme of human history, the idea of something being historically verifiable is a relatively new that's ideal. Correct. We're a pretty recent generation of people who are asking these questions of the Bible. Mm -hmm. That hasn't been a problem for generations before us. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I want to bring even those kinds of questions, even though they'd feel important to me, I want to bring them with some measure of humility. Yes. Because that's not the only thing that matters about the Bible. That's correct. Um, what matters is, is God revealing God's self to us and to the world in it? Um, and is it, uh, is it true rather than is it a fact? Mm. Um, or, or 
interesting and important questions. Yeah. So, I mean, another thing I would say is I think there's a very there's a very American, very 21st century impulse to do one of two things when it comes to the Bible. One is to go sort of the fundamentalist route and say everything in the Bible is literally true. And if one thing in the Bible isn't literally true, then it's just garbage, right? And we have to say everything in the Bible is literally true. I don't think that's helpful. But the other impulse is to say, well, if the Bible isn't literally true, then it, it then it's not God's word. And we have to throw it out. It's it's just as only as valuable as, you know, um, whatever you find in a self-help section at Barnes and Noble, right? It's just another opinion and it's not authoritative in any way. It doesn't teach us anything. And part of what I think both you and I are committed to in teaching and studying the Bible is rejecting both of those options, <laughs> right? And saying, you know, the Bible is... There's a unique truth. That's correct. To the Bible. And it is, it's just, it'd be so much easier if it was black and white, you know, mm -hmm. if we were able to say it's all 100% factual and historical, it happened exactly the way it's written here, but that's overlaying a modern viewpoint that just didn't exist when the Bible was written. Um, but it's hard to live in the gray. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Right. And, and if there's one thing that the Christian story teaches us, it's that divine truth comes to us through people. And that's part of what the mystery of the incarnation is about, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the climax of the Christian story is God becoming a human being. The word was made flesh and dwelled among us, as John 1 says. And I think we see an echo of that in the very nature of the Bible itself, right? If you assume that ultimate truth is only to be found in verifiable historical facts, well, then the Bible might be disappointing to you. But if you assume instead that truth is going to be handed on to us through the patient, loving, kind, occasionally fallible, but basically faithful witness of human beings in particular communities, then you'll be very excited about what you find in the Bible. Hmm. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So now we're going to jump to a couple questions that are more related to the content that we've read. And this next question, I'm actually going to give a little bit of a plug for uh, going back and listening to Alex's teaching mm. on the fall, yeah. because um, I think some of this relates to that. Because it's it, it, one of the things, one of the elements of, of Alex's teaching was he talked about what um, of the consequences of the fall, of, of the things that kind of got broken, what extended to us, you know, what still is broken today. And, and I'm not going to be able to list all of those things, you know, what were the consequences right. of the fall, but I remember him talking on that. Right. So, um, go back in the podcast episodes and, and listen to Alex. Uh, I, I do recall, I feel like he spoke quickly. So on the podcast, <laughs> you can slow it down so you can really listen and take in his content. Cause I remember when he finished talking, we all kind of sat back and went, Wow. Like every teacher, he had a ton of good ideas and not a lot of time to impart them. In, exactly. So, so that's the beauty of podcasting. I often speed up the podcasts I listen to, but with Alex, slow it down, take it all in. It's good. <laughs> Here's the question. So this idea was, you know, Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They became more aware. They became more knowledgeable. Did that transfer to us? Are we aware of uh, the knowledge of sin and evil in a unique way as a result of Adam and Eve, uh, along with getting 
you know, kicked out of the land like they did, having to endure uh, painful childbirth and toiling of the land. Um, do all those consequences still apply to us? Do we understand good and evil in a way that maybe we weren't intended to? Um, how does that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thanks, question asker, for your really good question. So here's how I would answer that question. So I would say, um, I think the, I think the answer is basically no. So like, I don't think there's a real gain of knowledge or wisdom that the story of Genesis two and three wants to depict. So what Adam and what happens to Adam and Eve in that story is that they fall away from their union of intimate closeness with God. And um, what's promised, right? So remember the words of the serpent that tempts them, you will be like God knowing good and evil. I think like all temptations, it promises something that it cannot deliver. Mm. So what in fact happens is that they, they do quote unquote learn something, but it's a tragic learning. So that what they learn is that if you've, by violating God's laws, they've introduced a separation into their relationship with God, a separation into their relationship with one another, with themselves and so on and so forth, and that they cannot undo at least in the context of that story. So the story ends with them being thrown out of the Garden of Eden, right? So do they learn something? Yes, of course. Um, but unfortunately, by the time they learn what they've learned, it's too late to undo the consequences of what they've learned. Often, even today, right, the knowing good and evil, <laughs> deliberating about ethics or about ethical decision-making is it, sometimes people use that as a way to pursue doing the right thing and um, really deliberate about how to follow Jesus. Oftentimes people use that as a way to um, justify themselves, right? And mm. to, um, yeah, excuse their own behavior, whether it's poor or whatever it may be. So um, I think... Um, in the situation we're in now, you know, we you know we all exist in the situation that Genesis two and three depict, right? We're all after the fall in that sense, right? And I I feel like I've em emphasized a lot. This isn't about we're not supposed to read this as a story that happened. We're supposed to read right. it as a story that's happening. We yes. are all. That's exactly right. Adam and Eve, created in the image of God and loved by God and delighted. God is delighted in us and we keep trying to falling for the, the lie saying we can yeah. become like God, we can right. surpass these limits and we live in the consequences of that. So instead right. of kind of saying, oh, Adam and Eve did this, they're bad and we are the victims of their bad choices. It's that we are all Adam and Eve and right. we are all the victims of our own choices of thinking that we can surpass the limitation of being created beings. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think Adam and Eve, um, the story of Adam and Eve is not just a story about something that happened long ago and far away. It, it is a metaphor. It is a, it is a fable, if you want to use that word, for um, how sin functions in human life. And it's a story about us. Like, 
every every person who is born grows up to be a sinner, right? Um, and um, every person knows from experience sooner or later that they their good intentions go awry. I think that's certainly true. Um, one of the radical ideas that's often unnoticed in Genesis 2 and 3 is this idea that it's actually true freedom comes from knowing God and sticking with him rather than the abstract ability to choose to know good and evil or choose between good and evil. And I think there's something really important there as well that um, – we often we often think, okay, you know, um, becoming an adult means the ability to make your own choices and and come up with your own ideas about what sort of life is worth living and how we're meant to behave. And I think what you see in the Bible is the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? That um, we are um, most free, not when we're sitting down and thinking, right, what's the right way to behave, but when we're honoring God's direction and God's wisdom for our lives. Yeah, it just made me think about all the times our kids would be like, I can't wait till I'm a grown-up so I can, and you're like, you have no idea. Yeah. You, it's always like, so I can eat all the candy I want. And I'm like, yeah. When, you know, so anyway, we don't yeah. always know what's best for us. Right. Yeah. I still want to eat all the candy I can, but that's, <laughs> that's not good for me, so. So then jumping ahead, so we got... Clearly, lots of questions come up when addressing the sacrificial system that is introduced. People are really curious about it. I mean, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of animals. <laughs> there's mention of some liver lobes, which... There was a very specific question about the long lobes of the liver. Which is the I name was, of your band back in that college, That was the name right? of my band in college. Yeah, the long liver lobes. Yeah, um, yeah. We were on um, Sub Pop for a minute, yeah. Uh, so help us wrap our minds around this. This is such a different, and we joke, but I want to be careful, right? It's a different culture yeah. than ours. And so to, I, I don't want to diminish it or disparage it, uh, but I do want to understand it. And I, 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 frankly, I read through it and it feels just so far from my understanding and my lived experience sure. that I just kind of go, ew, weird. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one question is like, you know, the people of Israel have been freed from slavery. They're supposedly wandering, you know, in the desert for all this time. And then all of a sudden they've got all these goats and rams and <laughs> doves yeah. and pigeons and things like, how did they acquire such sure. livestock to be able sure. to even offer it as a sacrifice? So let's start there, right? So I think that's a place where you see the different strands of scripture coming together. So... The book of Exodus is really funny because the first half of it is this riveting, riveting literary masterpiece about Moses freeing the Egyptians, sorry, Moses freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And then you get to Exodus 20 where he hands down the Ten Commandments and there's a covenant ceremony. And then almost all of the second half of Exodus from like chapter 21 to 40 or so is law. Almost all of it. Right. There's a little bit of action right. in there. But like, and that's, everyone starts to get, basically what happens is if you start reading the Bible from Genesis, you get through Genesis and you're like, right, I get it. And you get through the first half of Exodus and you're like, cool, going strong. And then you hit that second half of Exodus 
and it starts becoming more law and it's you're losing interest and then you get to Leviticus and of course Leviticus is all law and that's when nine out of ten people reading the Bible from beginning to end lose interest. So uh, with regard to you know how do you get um, rams and goats and sheep in Exodus if they've just entered the wilderness and they don't have any possessions, I think that's a place where you see multiple strands of Exodus and multiple time periods in which it was um, composed. So that probably is um, my guess, and I haven't checked this, but my guess is that that comes from a later period in time, perhaps when Israel was already dwelling in the land, and they were concerned about passing on instructions for how to properly worship God. So the assumption was then you're going to be in a situation where you do have access to livestock and you're able to worship God. You do have access to grain and things like that. Um, you're no longer in a wilderness situation, but they are written back into the book of Exodus as instructions um, for Israel's edification and well-being. Yeah. So then all these instructions are given. Right. Uh, all of these, um, we see all these depictions of them doing these things of, uh, you know, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the wave offering, the fellowship offerings. They've got offerings for right. everything under the sun. We only have one offering in church on Sundays. We're there. We're so much easier for us. Hey, oh, church jokes. <laughs> um, so they have all these things. They're dipping their fingers in blood and they're splashing it around on things. They're touching the altar with it. Uh, this is where also the mention of the long lobes, long lobes of the liver. Of the liver. Uh, anybody with any medical understanding can explain to us what those are, but that's for another podcast. Um, why, why, why don't we, don't we do that anymore? Sure. Right. Like lots of portions of scripture are dedicated to the very mm -hmm. specific instructions of how to make these offerings, which some of which atone for the sin of Adam and even everybody since then. And me today, I continue to sin, you know, and all the other things that are needed to reconnect us to God since that original disconnection. Do some sects continue these kinds of offerings and sacrifices today? Why or why not? How does that work? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot there. Um, I'll start with the, the your question at the end first. So as far as I know, no one continues offering um, – doing the offerings prescribed in the Torah today. Um, that's partly because – Eventually, in the history of Israel, the offerings become centralized in the temple in Jerusalem. So there's um, – when we get to like First or Second Samuel, there's actually a passage where King David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, into the city, right? And it lodges in a particular place. And this eventually becomes the temple under Solomon, and that's where all the offerings happen. So in the old days, once the temple is established, if you want to offer any of these offerings, you got to take a road trip and go to Jerusalem to worship God. Eventually, a lot happens. The temple is destroyed and the sacrifices cease. And so this is one of the reasons the destruction of the temple, um, both the first temple in the Old Testament as well as the second temple at the hands of the Romans – both temples are destroyed. Both times it poses a huge religious crisis um, for the Jews because they can't worship God in the way their scriptures dictate. 
And that's basically the situation. There's no temple in Israel to this day. If you go to Jerusalem, you can visit the Wailing Wall, which is all that's left of the second temple. Um, when the second temple is destroyed, the two religious groups that thrive and survive out of ancient Judaism are one, the Christians, and two, basically rabbinic Judaism. So, and what happened, the thing about both of those groups is that they're not temple-based religions. They're both book-based religions. So Christians immediately start writing the gospels and inter interpreting the Hebrew scriptures in a particular way. And rabbinic Judaism basically does the same thing, except without Jesus. The, the whole idea of scriptural study, of midrash, of looking at the Old Testament and sort of marinating in it and really... Uh, exegeting it and interpreting it becomes the focus of Judaism in a way it had perhaps not been when the temple was still around. So nobody today is continuing those sacrifices in exactly the way it's done because there isn't a temple and because Judaism isn't a temple-based religion any longer. And correct me if I'm wrong, but at least w within Christianity, there's a idea that Jesus is what is the, the, the substance of that offering that sacrifice. There isn't, you know, that Correct. this is going into some, some different territory, but to a certain extent, you know, the, the, the offerings that were particularly made for the atonement of sins mm -hmm. that Jesus offered himself yep. as the ultimate and final substitute for those. So we as Christians don't continue in the practice of blood offerings because of the offering of Jesus on the cross. Is that accurate? Yes, that's totally accurate. And and if you are interested in this theme of sacrifice, you should sit down sometime and read the book of Hebrews because Hebrews has a lot to say about this. And it says exactly what you just said, Becca, right? That the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is kind of the final, ultimate, once for all sacrifice that God intends for all humanity. And so from a Christian point of view, that's the additional reason why sacrifice is no longer necessary is that it's been done away with by the sacrifice of God's son. So while we feel a certain measure of I don't know, you could have a lot of different reactions when you read through these passages in the Old Testament. Sometimes they feel boring. Sometimes they feel weird. Sometimes mm -hmm. they, they're a little off-putting. I mean, yeah. we're not used to seeing animals' blood at all, right? We right. get boneless, skinless chicken breasts <laughs> pre-packaged right. from the store. We, we no longer have our hands on the actual animals when they have blood in them, right? right. Which, again, is a pretty new experience um, in the realm of human history. Um, but again, so these, these passages feel very foreign to us. However, I would encourage the reader to read them in light of remembering what's coming. Mm -hmm. You know, that they, these were, this was the system that was in place for people to receive forgiveness for their sin, that, that sin was deadly serious. Sin, yes. sin causes death. And, and so there was a system in place to recognize that, to say there was, there is a, it is, it is a problem that causes death across all spectrums. And so that sacrificial system was set up to, um, recognize that, to atone for that, to make it possible, uh, for new life to come. Um, and seeing what that required 
makes it all that much more valuable to understand what Jesus offered. Yes. Um, and so hopefully, while the reading of these passages can feel a bit onerous, hopefully it makes us that much more grateful for Jesus when we get there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say is I, I really recommend a book I talked about in my um, my Wednesday night class, but which but uh, with which readers um, or listeners may not be familiar, and that's a book called This Strange and Sacred Scripture by Matthew Schlimm, S-C-H-L-I-M-M. Um, it has really good chapters on sacrifice and, and, and these sorts of questions that we're kicking around. Um, and one thing he talks about is that a lot of the Old Testament law um, is built around um, the two great commandments, Right, is the the commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is found in Deuteronomy six, as well as other places, and the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And many of the commandments, though not all, pertain to those two great commandments. They are specifications and elaborations of those great commandments. Um, and even though they, we may. Um, we may have problems or objections with the ways they're elaborated and specified. It's really helpful to be able to look at those particular commandments and um, trace them back to principles that are very meaningful. Schlimm talks about there's a there's a wonderful, infamous passage. I think it's in Deuteronomy where <laughs> it says, um, if two men are fighting and a woman gets involved and she grabs the man by his genitals, Whoa. that's a big problem. That's I, a problem. It, yeah. may, it may say she has to be put to death or her hand has to be cut off. There may also, be some draconian punishment. I'm not sure. Also a problem, yeah. But he, Shalim talks about like in the ancient world, being able to, there were no retirement plans. Being able to have children was basically your retirement plan. <laughs> And anyone who attacked another person in such a way as to hurt their reproductive organs might do away with their ability to have kids and so be taken care of when they were old. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so it's very possible that that seemingly bizarre, even laughable law actually has a very down-to-earth purpose, which is like, hey, if you get into a fight with someone, like, don't kick them in the breadbasket because then they <laughs> won't be able to have anyone to look after them. So now it's if you get in a fight with anybody, don't go steal their 401k. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think the idea of, um, I mean, certainly we shouldn't do that, right? I mean, don't, so I think don't do away with people's livelihood. Don't yeah. do away with the things that enable them to have a safe and secure old age. That's really important. And again, behind even the seemingly bizarre commandments, there's usually an underlying purpose that we can respect, even if we don't adhere to it today. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And because it's so, feels so foreign, we don't easily see that underlying message. But when we do get it, when we understand so much of the Bible is, as you say, it's pointing us to love God with our whole heart, my, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, especially the neighbor as is... Um, laid out for us by Jesus in yep. the stories of um, Matthew 25, you know, the, the least and the last and the lost in that parable um, or the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus yep. says, you know, the neighbor is this despised person uh, that, that actually stops and, and cares for somebody. Um, the Bible has a, a, a long 
history of pointing us to care for the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the Absolutely. refugee, the yes. foreigner, um, and just make sure that justice is being served for people that might be left otherwise quite vulnerable. Yep. So jumping then, our final question uh, is one that kind of connects the Old Testament to the New. Um, we're not to the New Testament yet. We're not to Jesus. But in some ways, the Old Testament can and ought to point us to the New Testament. And, and certainly when we read the New Testament, there are so many allusions back to the Old Testament that the two help us understand each other, right? Yep. Uh, it's one for us, uh, for Christians, it is one Bible. Uh, but for Jewish folks that have these stories, um, that have these prophecies, that we as Christians find fulfillment in Jesus Christ, they don't. Mm -hmm. Jewish folks don't recognize Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. We seem to think, you know, or at least it's communicated sometimes that those prophecies about Christ are so clear that it's, oh, of course that's pointing to Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, but not everyone sees it that way. Uh, why is it? Why didn't they read their scriptures that way and, and see Jesus in that same way? Yeah, sure. So... Um that's another wonderfully complicated question that I could talk all day about. Um, so both Jews and Christians um, expect a Messiah. They both, uh, they both draw on strands of the Old Testament that look ahead to a, to a coming of a Messiah. Um, Christians believe that the Messiah was Jesus, whereas Jews are believed that the Messiah has not yet coming, has not yet come. They're still waiting for him to come. The disagreement has to do with who <laughs> it partly has to do with who Jesus was as a person and the nature of his ministry. So if you read the Gospels, particularly if you read something like the Gospel of Mark, it's very evident that Jesus in some ways was a very likely candidate for the Jewish Messiah, while in other ways he was a very unlikely candidate for that Messiah. Um, on one hand, he performed miracles and he interpreted the scriptures and he forgave sins. Um, these were all things that in many ways were um, part of a typical Jewish expectation of the Messiah. But then on the other hand, he did um, and experienced things that they weren't expecting the Messiah to do and experience. So Jesus uh, was crucified to begin with. And that's kind of a big deal. That's yeah. kind of a big deal. And he did not... Um, he did not vanquish the Romans. So right, because there was a lot of political expectation that's of correct. their Messiah. So, and and this gets into this gets into specific details. So, for ancient Jews, Messiah could mean you know meant religious leader. It could also mean king. Right, so another we, David. Right. So when we look at the kings in the Old Testament, what you're going to see is that every king is anointed. Right, which means chosen by God. That's exactly right. So when um, David is chosen 
um, by Samuel to be king, Samuel anoints him, right? So Messiah means anointed. So they're the Jews are looking ahead for a king, and Jesus is a very strange kind of king. So remember the stories of Palm Sunday in the scriptures where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, but he does not ride in on the, the back of a big tall horse impressing everyone with his strength and power. He rides in on a donkey, which is a very intentional way of subverting that expectation to be like, yes, I'm the guy, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the one you were looking for in that way. Right, and even going backwards, he wasn't hanging out in the temple. He wasn't spending time with religious leaders. He mm-hmm. was out with the people and mm-hmm. eating meals with sinners and mm-hmm. tax collectors. Mm-hmm. In their mind, that's not what a Messiah was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they had set up a very, what they thought was a f- faithful, but hum- with human error, religious system, that Jesus came in and said, nope, that's not what I have in mind. And, you know, you read through the gospels and in, in a lot of ways, the religious leaders are the bad guys in mm. in the gospel stories, um, the Jewish leaders. And, and we have to be careful with that because that has sure. led to a great deal of anti-Semitism. Um, but I I also read it with some sympathy. Right. You know, I'm a religious leader. <laughs> right. I am also a religious leader. Yeah, exactly. And if Jesus were to show up in the same sort of distressing disguise mm-hmm. that he showed up in yeah. 2000 years ago, I often ask myself, would I recognize him? Right. I also, just as the Jewish people of that day, have all the scriptures that point me to who the Messiah would be and what he ought to look like. And yet they missed it. Who am I, who am I to say that I would, yeah. would recognize him? No. And so, right. The gospel of Mark is all about this, right? That the Messiah comes and people don't don't recognize him. Um, The gospel of Luke is about this, right? When Jesus rises from the dead and he approaches his own disciples and says, tell me about this Jesus guy. And they start telling Jesus all about himself. It's almost comedic. Um, It expresses this idea that Jesus is not recognized even by the people closest to him. Um, The gospel of John in chapter one, it tells us he came to his own and his own received him not. There's this amazing ability to be very close to the Messiah, but not get him that the, all of the gospels are, are pointing us toward. So <laughs> we've come a long way from the original question just to bring us back there. Like, why don't the Jews accept Jesus? Because he's not partly because he's not the Messiah they're expecting. And because he um, confounds the hopes that they have for what the Messiah would look like. And what you see in the first couple centuries of the church's history is that by and large, Christianity starts out among Jews, but very quickly becomes a Gentile religion. So it starts out Jesus was a Jew. All the earliest disciples um, were Jews. Paul was a Jew. But pretty quickly, non-Jews start becoming Christian in big numbers, partly because Paul is really good at his job and he's evangelizing pagans everywhere he goes. And, you know, within a couple centuries, Jews are actually the minority within Christianity. So there's, you know, there's another twist of fate that happens there where, um, for whatever reason, um, even though Christianity is at its heart very much a continuation of Judaism, it lays claim to Judaism in many ways, most Jews don't wind up becoming Christians. And that sets the stage for the complicated landscape we have today.
which we will get to as we continue into the New Testament in a few weeks. We've been talking for a long time, and I feel like we've only been talking for like 10 minutes. Well, that is what a scholar would say. Yeah. I'm thinking of a saying, and if you can help me remember it, this is how we'll close. If you can't, then we'll come up with something else. (laughs) But a saying is coming to mind that something, something to the effect of... Long lobes of the liver? (laughs) No, uh, contrasting the idea of um, the parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. You know, we complain there's all this stuff that we we can't understand, but really it's, um, there's a lot more that we can't understand and we could simply obey it. You know what I'm talking about? What's the saying? So, I mean, I'm I'm not sure what the specific one you're thinking of is. I know there's a... um, there's a parable of Kierkegaard where he talks about this. So Soren Kierkegaard was a, a 18th century Danish philosopher and theologian. And he, he basically said, the Bible is like a love letter from your beloved. And there are parts of it you'll understand and parts of it you won't understand. And you can spend all of your time trying to understand or decipher the parts you don't get. Or you can simply do and obey the parts you do understand. And so he encourages puzzled readers of the Bible to begin with that, right? So if, you know, we may not understand the entirety of the sacrificial system, but we can understand the commandments it's based on love God and love our neighbor, right? And and we'll stick with, we will focus on the parts we do understand and can implement while still trying to understand more about the Bible day by day. I was absolutely not trying to quote Soren Kierkegaard, but I'm grateful that that's what that led you to. And that is a wonderful way to end um, the Bible as a love letter that we don't fully understand all of it, but that which we do understand, we are fully empowered to live out. And if we become more and more people who love God and love our neighbor, especially the neighbor who is uh, weaker and needing more and uh, in, in, in living in risk of further injustice in this world. If we love those neighbors well, um, I think we're doing something right. Amen. Well, thanks, friends, for joining us on this journey. This is our very first podcast together. Maybe not the last. I hope not. We'll find out. Uh, if any more questions come your way, send them along to dbruner at knoxpress.org. Thanks, y'all. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.